Welcome to Summit Podcasts. This is Michael Bond. Today we're bringing you week one of a six-week course on church history. This course is taught by Pastor Todd Stanley. Todd is the associate pastor at Summit Church, and those of you who are familiar with the podcast know that he does excellent work. If you enjoy church history, or just want to learn more about it, then I recommend you pay close attention to the episodes in this series. There will be more on the way, and if you enjoy this content, make sure you let us know. You can contact us at summitpodcast.church forward slash contact. Without further delay, I bring you Pastor Todd Stanley. Well, hello, hello. Everybody doing all right? Good. I'm glad you're here. Uh, For those of you who may not know, I'm Todd. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit. Uh, Over the next six weeks, and actually before I forget, let me... Uh, if you could just sign in for me on this pad, and and uh, that way I can know who's here. And so, uh, thank you for being here. Uh, you're helping me out, and hopefully, I'm helping you out as well. Uh, I'm working on my master's degree, and one of the things that I needed to do was to satisfy a church history requirement. And one, I could, there were several ways I could have done that, like write write papers and do project, but one of them was that I could teach a class on church history. And so I thought, you know what, there may be some folks who are interested in something like that at the summit, and I think it could be helpful for us. And so uh, that's what I decided to do. And so I I hope that it's beneficial for you. Uh, And really, honestly, for me, uh, you know, like I said, there were other ways that I could have satisfied this requirement, but I felt like this could be really helpful for us. And we'll talk about why here in just a a couple of minutes. Um, But let me go over uh, just a few housekeeping things. Um, This will be six, over the next six weeks, um, I say over the next six weeks, that's actually what I need to say is that we, there will be a couple of weeks where we will take a break because I will be with the team in Zambia. So we have one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six. You know what? It works out just right. Uh, we will finish up right before I leave for Zambia. So we leave on August the 1st, and counting today, there are six Sundays between now and August the 1st. So uh, we will finish up uh, August, I mean, uh, July the 31st will be our last day to meet. And so having said that, uh, the church has been in existence now for a little over 2,000 years so to cover 2,000 years of church history in six weeks is, is really a, a daunting task. Uh, and so suffice it to say that this really will be a high-level kind of overview, the kind of, you know, 50,000-foot view, as it were. We're not going to be able to take a whole lot of deep dives kind of thing. Um, but hopefully... Uh, if nothing else, it will pique your interest because there are a ton of great resources out there where you can you can learn some of these things and take those deeper dives if you want to. Um, for example, um, there's uh, kind of an online theology thing called Theosu that has a great a uh, couple of cl- courses on church history, uh, Right Now Media, which is another video-based thing that the church has access to, uh, has a great uh, course on church history. Uh, there are some books uh, that I could recommend for you. Um, 
one of which is called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce L. Shelley. Um, All right, so first let's pray and uh, ask for God's blessing, and then we'll dive in. Lord, I thank you for the ways in which your Spirit has faithfully guided the church throughout history, that in spite of persecution, in spite of opposition, in spite of internal conflict, in spite of disagreements and argument over belief, in spite of heresy that has risen, your church has continued to flourish and that your promise is that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, as we examine church history, that there is benefit for us as followers today of Jesus so that we might be faithful in the way that we live, in the way that we approach scripture, in the way that we understand what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So Lord, uh, we ask that you would guide our conversation. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so just want to set a couple of ground rules. Uh, I'm just going to keep moving. And so if you have a question, raise your hand. I'll be glad to stop. Um, uh, but, um, I'm going to try to move pretty quickly. So, um, you'll have to stop me. That's the point I'm making. It's okay to raise your hand and stop me, but make sure you raise it really high. Cause I'll just keep moving. All right. Um, <clears throat> so what is church history and why is it worth studying? So there was a, uh, a, a professor and historian named Kenneth Scott LaTourette. Uh, he was a professor at Yale right after the Second World War. And he defined church history as this. He said that church history is the spread of the influence of Jesus. And so when we talk about the history of the church, that's really what we're talking about, is the spread of the influence of Jesus. And he pointed out this. He said, no fact in history is more amazing than that Jesus' influence spread at all. On the day that Jesus was crucified, it would have seemed extraordinarily unlikely that his influence would outlast the day. Roman soldiers took Jesus' mangled, lifeless body down from the cross on which he died. It would have looked as though the odds were overwhelmingly stacked against Jesus' influence becoming the largest religious movement in history. Or you being here today for us to talk about the history of the church uh, in the 21st century. But that did happen, and here we are, right? So church history is a topic that is worth studying if for no other reason than because of the sheer unlikelihood that the church would survive long enough to have a history worth studying. And so uh, if that's not enough, let me give you three more reasons that we should study church history, all right? Number one, studying church history can make us humble. Uh, Ecclesiastes says that there is nothing new under the sun, And the Irish philosopher Edmund Burke said this. He said, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We've probably all heard that at some point or another. And so familiarizing ourselves with church history can help us to avoid some of the past mistakes of the church. It can help us to address some of the theological questions that arise today because these are things that we have faced in church history over time. And so then we can understand how the church has historically addressed these kinds of questions and we can know 
what faithful Christians and Orthodox Christianity has believed over the centuries in regard to some of the same things that we face today. For example, studying the Crusades warns us against using uh, the ways of the world to achieve the purposes of God. Studying the Council of Nicaea, uh, and we'll talk about what that is as we go along, that helps us to see that many of the same heresies they fought then are still with us today. Studying the Reformation movements that overcorrected previous errors and introduced new ones reminds us that zeal must be coupled with humility and that every generation, including ours, has blind spots when it comes to our theology and when it comes to our understanding of God. And so that we have to remain humble as we approach those things. Number two, studying church history can fill us with hope. So not only can it make us humble, it can give us hope. A quick survey of church history will remind us that Christianity has survived in spite of being illegal for the first 300 years of its existence. Uh, in spite of the fact, uh, you know, in spite of that fact, the church conquered and then outlasted the Roman Empire that had tried to destroy it. It can also remind us of the many times that God raised up leaders from the margins when the establishment became corrupt. We can read the testimonies of thousands of Christians and believers whose lives were transformed by the gospels and that emboldens us to believe that by God's grace we can follow in their footsteps as well, right? The scriptures even tell us in Hebrews that uh, you know, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that is cheering us on. And then in Revelation, it says that they overcame by the, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so these stories are important for us because they can give us hope and increase our faith. By studying church history, we can trace the fulfillment of Jesus' promise when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. I mentioned Kenneth LaTourette before. Uh, he said that the increase of Jesus' influence on the world has been like the incoming tide and that like the tide, it has moved forward in waves and each major wave has been followed by a major recession, but each major wave has also set a new high water mark and each major recession has been a little bit less pronounced than the one before it. And slowly but surely, the church of Jesus has not only survived, but it has multiplied, it has expanded, it has matured, and Jesus' promise is coming true. You know, it's easy for us to look around at the world that we live in, especially in Western culture where it seems as if Christianity is receding. I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but it certainly can appear that way at times because there is a rising secularism around us. But what we don't see often in Western culture because, you know, because we only live within a certain context is that globally the church of Christ is still growing by leaps and bounds and that the gospel is moving forward and that gospel work is being done and that people's lives are being transformed and that every day thousands upon thousands of people are being added to the church, right? Jesus is fulfilling his promise. So number one, studying church history can make us humble. Number two, studying church history can fill us with hope. And number three, 
Studying church history helps ground us in our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, I don't know about you, but growing up, I didn't know there was a whole lot really that I needed to know about church history. Uh, you know, need to know what's in the Bible. And so there's some history in there. And so, uh, and then maybe there were a few highlights, maybe kind of high water marks, like you need to know a little bit about the Reformation, uh, you know, since, since we're Protestant and not Catholic. And then me, I was raised in the Assemblies of God. I was raised as a Pentecostal. And so, you know, they talked about the Azusa Street Revival and the rise of Pentecostalism. So those were things that I felt like I needed to learn. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot other than that that I felt like I needed to learn. But you and me both, when we were in school, learned a lot about the history of the nation in which we live, right? We learned a lot about the United States, uh, and so, but I, I don't know about you, but for me, I learned virtually nothing about the history of the people of God. But the Bible teaches us that our primary citizenship is not our citizenship as, um, as citizens of the United States of America. Our primary citizenship, and this is true for people in all countries who follow Jesus, right? Our primary citizenship is not of this world. Our primary citizenship is in heaven and that it is our relationship, our kinship with other believers through the Holy Spirit that's thicker than any natural ties of nationality, of ethnicity, or even of our biological family. Uh, when Jesus you know, Jesus was kind of confronted with this issue because uh, his family was outside and they were, this is in Mark chapter three and they were wanting him to come out. Uh, they, I, honestly, his brothers thought he was a little crazy and uh, they thought he'd gone a little bit too far and they were trying to get him to come out and kind of stop doing what he was doing. And Jesus, of course, he was asking a rhetorical question, but Jesus asks this question. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he answers the question himself and he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so if that is the case, if we have a, a family, right, as part of the family of God that supersedes every other tie or citizenship or family that we might have, then we need to know the history of our people. <laughs> um, you know, Bob Marley uh, in, in the song Buffalo Soldiers said this, if you don't know your history, you don't know where you're coming from. And so we need to know our history. Uh, and so uh, knowing church history can help to ground us in our identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. Um, you know, if, for example, I, you know, there's a, and we'll, we'll talk about some of these councils, but if we don't know about the Council of Chalcedon, for example, or the Reformation, or the, the century of foreign missions, uh, then we, we don't know how then our lives fit into the spirit-empowered kingdom, people of God, right? We don't know how God is writing us into his story or the way in which he has stewarded the church throughout history. And so those are some reasons that we should study church history. Um, and so now that we've defined that the history of the church is about the spread of the influence of Jesus, I want us to really quickly, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, uh, but we're going to go all the way back and do a quick uh, overview of the biblical story that leads up to the founding of the church. Because the history of the church didn't start with the birth of Jesus, and it didn't start 
at the crucifixion. It didn't start on the day of Pentecost. Those are all really important, um, you know, significant days in the history of the church. And of course, the church would be born, so to speak, on the day of Pentecost, uh, but that's not where the history of the church begins. So the history of the church begins all the way back, right? Uh, Christianity is an Eastern religion. We don't think about that often. Um, We live in a Western context, and much of Western civilization as we know it has been shaped by Christianity, and so we can often think of Christianity as a Western religion, but it actually started in the Middle East. Specifically, Christianity grew out of the Middle Eastern religion of the Hebrew people or of the Jewish people, uh, the descendants of Abraham. Jesus was and is ethnically Jewish, and the earliest Christian gatherings took place in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, in the very earliest days of the church, Christians were considered to be a sect of the Jewish religion. Uh, And so um, a majority of the Christian Bible consists of the Hebrew scriptures. So the Old Testament, that's the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, It is uh, the largest portion of the Bible. And so it was originally written in Hebrew to the descendants of Abraham. And since Christians, as Christians, we believe that the coming of Jesus started a new and final chapter in this history. We've come to refer to that part of the Bible as the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And to properly understand uh, this movement that Jesus started, we have to put it into that context as a continuation of the history of God's redemptive work that stretches all the way back to the very beginning, to Adam and Eve, and then to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And, and so... Uh, We need to understand that all of this is rooted and grounded in those things. And the reason that's important is because the Old Testament narrative um, really begins to flesh out God's purposes in history and God's purposes in humanity. Uh, And I'll, I'll try to do it as simply as I can because there's an overarching narrative to all of the Old Testament, right? Without diving into all of the minutia, here's kind of the over, kind of the overview, right? Uh, there, there's a, there's a thread that goes throughout all of the Old Testament that, uh, begins with creation God creates a good world and sets human beings over it. Then the fall of man, humans bring, humans bring uh, ruin to the world's original goodness by listening to the serpent in, in the Garden of Eden and disobeying God's commandment. And then redemption. So God works to restore his creation to its original goodness by making promises to people that encourage them to be faithful to him in return. The first promise that he makes is to Eve that one of her descendants would be wounded by the serpent, but that this descendant would crush the serpent under his foot, freeing God's good creation from the power of evil and the power of Satan. So that creation and the fall all takes place in the first chapter, first three chapters of Genesis. And so then the rest of the Old Testament, right, is about sketching out God's um, redemptive work through the history of the people of Israel, through the history of the Hebrews, the people, you know, the Jewish people. And so I wanted to give you just a kind of a quick 
We're going to divide that up into covenants. There are different ways of dividing up the Old Testament, but this will give you a quick kind of understanding. Um, and so it maybe can be helpful to you. Now, a covenant was a solemn promise that was ratified by a blood oath. And in the ancient world, it was the equivalent of and really uh, even in some ways more binding than what we would understand as in terms of a legal contract. But uh, it was the ancient world's equivalent of a legal contract. And so God would make these covenants with key, fee- key people, key characters, key figures in the Old Testament. And like I said, this is not the only way to organize the narrative of the Old Testament, but it can be really helpful. So the first of these covenants is the Abrahamic covenant. So God calls Abraham, uh, who is a pagan, right? So God reveals himself to Abraham and calls him out of his homeland and leads him to the land of Canaan. And he makes Abraham an unconditional promise. And that promise was that Abraham would bear a son and that son would become a nation and that nation would inhabit the land of Canaan and that nation would eventually bless the entire world. And Abraham and his descendants, they lived a nomadic lifestyle, uh, wandering around, living in tents until the days of Joseph. When, during, the, during the time of Joseph, they settled in Egypt. And after an initial period of prosperity in Egypt, the Egyptians enslaved the people of God. Which leads us to the second major covenant in the Old Testament. So God raises up Moses to be a deliverer for the people of Israel. This is called the national period, and uh, this would be the Mosaic covenant. Um, And so after delivering Abraham's descendants or the Jewish people from slavery and leading them out of Egypt, God meets with Moses at Mount Sinai and gives him the law. Uh, the Ten Commandments, and then the, the, other, the other laws. But unlike Abraham's covenant, now God's covenant with Abraham was unconditional. Unlike that covenant, this covenant comes with a condition. If the Israelites are faithful to keep the law, they will live blessed in the land that God promised to Abraham. And if the Israelites are unfaithful and break the law, they will be cursed and exiled from the land Israel eventually enters into the promised land, right? This is in Exodus. Um, But without a strong leader, they become weak and divided. They break the covenant. And then, of course, uh, havoc, right? Havoc breaks out. Um, And so that leads us to the third covenant. One of the things that Israel had done without a strong leader was that they had become influenced by the nations around them and by the pagan practices and by the religions of the nations around them. And there were problems and there wasn't, uh, you know, there had been the period where the judges had, had kind of helped and ruled over Israel. Um, but the Bible says that during that time, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And so it was kind of chaotic and the people asked for a king and they got one, Saul. Uh, Saul was not uh, a very good king, uh, and he quickly became oppressive and idolatrous. Uh, anyway, so then God raises up David, which would be the third covenant, the Davidic covenant. God raises up David, uh, who scripture describes as a man after God's own heart, and he becomes the standard for all of the subsequent kings of Israel. And God makes a promise, makes a covenant with David, promising him that his throne will endure forever. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, It's not very clear uh, how this promise will be fulfilled because um, 
A couple of generations after David, the kingdom splits in two. The 10 northern tribes rebel against David. And since they are never faithful to the covenant, despite repeated prophetic warnings, God eventually allows them to be conquered by Assyria and puts an end to them as a nation state. And then under the leadership of David's descendants, the southern kingdom, which is commonly referred to as Judah in the Bible, it lasts a little bit longer than the northern kingdom, but eventually it too breaks covenant in spite of repeated warnings by the prophets, and they are conquered and taken into exile in Babylon. All right, so it's looking pretty grim at this point, which brings us to uh, God's people in exile. And this is kind of the fourth kind of movement, you might say, in the Old Testament. And that is where we come to this place where there's a need for a new covenant. It looks like Israel's story is over. Uh, but God uh, has promised that he will sustain his people and he allows the people of the southern kingdom in Judah to return to the promised land, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, to install a descendant of David as their governor. And since Israel is no longer an independent nation, however, uh, the story seems still to be impossible. And during this period, the Jews are longing for national independence and that stirs up kind of a revival in Israel. And God's people begin to pay more attention to the words of the prophets and the predictions about a Messiah who would establish an everlasting kingdom that God had promised to David. That he would make Israel a blessing to the entire world as God had promised to Abraham. And that he would crush the head of the serpent as he had promised to Eve. And so the prophets... So the people of Israel were looking for this Messiah to come, this kind of political and military leader who would rise up and overthrow their oppressors and reestablish national Israel. They wanted it to be an independent nation, and they thought that's what the Messiah was coming to do. Uh, but there were some other prophecies and other predictions that the prophets had made that were a little more difficult for the Israelites to, to grab hold of and to understand or to, to, to get on board with. Uh, things like this, that God would send a suffering servant to atone uh, for sin at the cost of his own life. That's in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, that God would make a new covenant with his people and write the law that Israel had never been able to keep on their hearts. That's in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. That God had promised that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. That's in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. So all of these promises, all of these predictions anticipate the coming of the Messiah. And so by the time Jesus is born, a lot had changed since Malachi wrote the last of the Old Testament prophecies around 450 BC. So here are some of those things that had changed. By the, by the time that Jesus is born, Greek was the common language. Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world. Uh, he had conquered Palestine in the 330s, and that helped make 330s BC, by the way, uh, that helped make Greek the common language of the region. And within 70 years of Alexander's conquest of the Middle East, um, 
the diaspora, which that was the word that they used to describe the way that Israelites had been scattered uh, after the nation of Israel had fallen. They had been taken into exile and into captivity into many of the other neighboring countries. And so in Egypt, there was a pretty large diaspora community. Um, And in fact, that community was so large that by 70 AD, the government in Egypt commissioned a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint. And so during this dispersion, which is what diaspora means, during this scattering, that's when Jews began to meet in synagogues. Right? The Greeks had founded cosmopolitan, prosperous cities around the Mediterranean Sea, and Jews who immigrated to these cities in search of opportunity uh, became known as the diaspora or the scattering, and the Jewish faith still only had one temple in Jerusalem. And Jews would travel there often for the major festivals and that kind of thing. But in order to maintain their faith uh, while they were living in these foreign countries, uh, they would study the scriptures together and they started synagogues, which would, you know, we, there are still synagogues, right? And that's it's like a modern church, right? A lot like a modern church uh, in every city in the empire. And by Jesus's day, more Jews spoke Greek than Hebrew, so that was, that was part of the, the kind of environment in which Jesus uh, was born. And then because uh, Rome um, had you know, become the, the ruling power, Alexander died and there were generals who divided up his empire and they fought repeatedly over the land of Palestine So anyway, all of that to say, in 63 BC, the Romans invaded, they put a permanent end to any kind of Jewish state, uh, and they brought this thing that was called the Pax Romana, or the Pax Romana, depends on how you want some people pronounce the word differently, Uh, that means the Roman peace. And so Roman rule was harsh, but it brought some real advancements. They built roads that connected... um, their new province of Judea to the rest of the empire. Uh, probably if you've, you know, maybe many of you have heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. That was literally true in the Roman empire. And so from every new province, they built roads and connected a, a major road system, a major highway system that led back to the capital. And this helped, um, you know, shipping and transport, it helped military movement, it helped, but one of the, one of the things that it also did was that enabled the spread of new ideas, and the spread of literature, and the spread of philosophy, and the spread of new things, um, very quickly throughout the Roman Empire in ways that had never before been able to happen. And so the world into which Jesus and in which the church later would be born was a world in which new ideas could spread relatively easily and very quickly. Throughout the empire, people spoke a common language and they traveled on safe roads. And Jews who wanted to spread new teaching benefited from the presence of synagogues in every city where the scriptures were already being taught. So why is all of that important for us? Because it helps us to see God's purpose in history. Scripture tells us that at just the right time, Christ was born. 
right? And so all of these things that had happened, all these things that led up to the birth and the coming of Christ provided the perfect environment in which the church could begin and could thrive and, the, and could spread very quickly. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So in spite of all of that, though, the Jews still saw Romans as oppressors, um, and they still hoped for the promise of David's eternal uh, kingdom, and they coped with the frustration of living under uh, Roman rule in different ways. So the Sadducees, they uh, were a group, uh, you know, you hear that name in the, in, in the Gospels a lot. That, they were a group, they were members of the temple leadership in Jerusalem, and they had mostly made peace with the Roman political establishment, and they profited financially from doing so. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more spread out geographically. They were more likely to come from the classes of the common people, and they interpreted Roman occupation as divine judgment for Israel's continued unfaithfulness to the covenant, and they stressed obedience to the law and developed elaborate systems to apply it to every conceivable situation of life. And then there was were the Essenes. The Essenes were kind of, they were... Uh, an ascetic group. They were, they like separated themselves. Like they, uh, they're like, I'm going to date myself with this reference, but like, you know, like the Branch Davidians, you know, they had a compound in Waco and they, you know, didn't really associate with the rest of society and they were off, you know, um, so they checked out of society altogether. They withdrew to desert communities to await the end of the world, which they believed to be imminent. And then there were the zealots who revolted against the system by carrying out assassinations and guerrilla attacks against political opponents and targets. And rather than weakening Roman resolve, uh, the efforts of the zealous and these attacks by the zealots uh, led to increasingly heavy-handed Roman, Roman you know, uh, retaliation. So all of that to say that this is the context in which Jesus' ministry would begin and that he would come and begin to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And so then Jesus comes onto the scene preaching this message and he's uh, performing miracles. He demonstrated that the kingdom of God was breaking in and this created interest among the people and Jesus' fame began to spread. Uh, but then there were a lot of Jews who lost interest in Jesus when they realized that he was not interested in a political revolution. Instead, Jesus started teaching that the kingdom of God was within and, and would be established through his death on a cross rather than through a military conquest. He predicted that he would die to purchase the forgiveness of sins, that he would establish a new covenant in his own blood. He spoke about a future in which the temple would no longer be necessary and Jews and Gentiles would come to God on equal footing. And a lot of these aspects of Jesus' message were difficult for his contemporaries, for the Jews of his day to accept. And his claim to be God was especially problematic for the Jewish leaders, and it made them really angry. In fact, they thought that was blasphemy, and so they began to look for a way to kill Jesus. And so they, uh, they also knew, since Jesus is claiming to be God, and since he's claiming to be the Messiah, uh, the, Jew, the Jewish religious leaders knew that that would sound to Roman ears 
like treason, like sedition. And so the Jews were able to convince the Roman government uh, to execute Jesus in the most humiliating way, befitting an enemy of the Roman state. So Jesus is crucified. Now, Jesus was not the first person to claim to be the Messiah, nor was he the first Messianic claimant to be crucified by the Romans. Um, In the context of first century Palestine, the way in which Jesus died um, was really sadly pretty predictable. That was always what happened to young Jewish men who rebelled against the powers that were in place, who rebelled against the Roman state and against the Jewish religious establishment. And so the only thing that makes Jesus' death remarkable is what happens next. You still with me? I know it's a whole lot. We're drinking out of the fire hydrant, all right? Um, so Jesus is the, is the most famous, but by no means the only, Jewish man who claimed to be the Messiah in the first century AD. In fact, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus, um, who tells us that in the decade before Jesus' birth, before and after Jesus' birth, so in the 10 years before and after Jesus' birth, no less than three different men claimed to be the Messiah and led Messianic revolts against Roman occupation. There was a man named Judas, who was actually from the same province, the same region that Jesus was from, from Galilee, and he led a tax revolt on the grounds that Jews should pay taxes to no one but God, And the Roman army crushed his revolt and crucified his two sons. Uh, Ethronges, who was a shepherd, he and his four brothers led a revolt that managed to decimate an entire company of Roman soldiers. uh, After which, uh, Ethronges was crowned king, but his movement fell apart after the Romans killed his brothers and he was never heard from again. Then there was a man named Simon of Perea uh, who had been a slave to King Herod, but he rose up against Herod. He burned down his palace in Jericho uh, and he was also crowned king and he managed to escape into the desert, but Herod's commanding officer Gratus tracked him down and cut off his head, right? So there had been other men who had been claiming to be the Messiah and they had met in some ways a very similar end to Jesus, So what makes Jesus different? What makes Jesus different, obviously, we know, is that three days after being crucified, he gets up and he begins to appear to his disciples. He begins to appear to his followers. And then, rather than this Jesus movement dissipating and disappearing the ways in which these other would-be Messiah's movements and followings have done. The the following of Jesus, the, the way of Jesus begins to grow and to increase. And so that leads us to the day of Pentecost, right? Uh, and so this is, right, so this is shortly after Jesus is crucified. Uh, in AD 30 is when Jesus was crucified. Something happens that is very difficult to explain by purely natural means. Uh, and this is the reason that any of us still know Jesus' name today. Jesus' followers 
Now, John, in, in his gospel, it tells us that after Jesus dies, that his followers go into hiding. They are trembling in fear behind locked doors. They are afraid that the Romans are going to come after them in the same way that he's killed Jesus, or they've killed Jesus. And so suddenly, though, these same followers who had been cowering in fear and hiding in fear begin to proclaim boldly that Jesus had risen from the dead. And in the book of Acts, Luke writes that seven weeks after Jesus rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and then he poured out his spirit on a group of 120 disciples who were meeting in a home in Jerusalem, right? This is in Acts chapter 2. We know this as the day of Pentecost, And the disciples began speaking in languages they had never heard. As they left the home where they had been meeting, they headed for the temple. They attracted a crowd of Jews who were in town for the holiday and who heard them speaking in their respective languages from all of these different parts of the empire. And so then they get to the temple and Peter stands up and he preaches and he tells, the, he tells the, the story of Jesus. He preaches the gospel of Jesus. And then Luke says that 3,000 people responded to Peter's invitation that day. And that became the birth, the birthday, so to speak, of the church of Jesus. And before long, he says that many other people had joined them and that awe came upon everyone. Luke said, all came on everyone because of the many wonders and signs that were being done by the apostles. So rather than squashing this Jesus movement when they crucified him, the Jewish and Roman authorities uh, actually had poured gas on an open flame. And the church begins to grow and it begins to thrive. And the message of Jesus begins to spread very quickly from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and then throughout the Roman Empire. So Jesus had been crucified by the Roman state because of pressure that had been put on them by the Jewish religious establishment. And those two groups, the Jewish religious establishment and the Roman state, um, would, would oppose the church um, for the, for the next hundred years, really, uh, and, and the Roman state actually a little bit longer, but they would continue to have opposition from those two groups. But they also would begin to experience some internal tensions. There were a group, there was a, there were a group in the church known as the Hebrews, right? They were the more, if you can say more Jewish uh, of the, the groups. They were conservative Jews, who wanted to maintain the customs of the Jewish people, like circumcision and all of the dietary laws and observing all of the festivals and all of those kind of things. And then on the other hand, there were the Hellenists. Now, these were Jews who had maybe immigrated back into Palestine, but had been part of the diaspora that we talked about before, the scattering. So they had been living in other parts of the Roman Empire, other parts of the Greek world, as it were. And um, they were more receptive to Gentile ideas and culture and influences. And so these two groups tended uh, at this time in history to live in separate neighborhoods, to speak different languages, and to have different mindsets. And so then there's some tension that begins to occur, you know, and the reason it's important for us to understand this is because we can have this idea 
that after the day of Pentecost that things were just perfect. Like, you know, that, and that the church has just gotten messier and messier over time. Uh, that's just not the case. Uh, from day one, really, there have been questions to answer. There have been, I mean, anytime people are involved, there are going to be differences of opinion. There are going to be things that we have to work through. And that's why it's important for us to understand this in terms of church history is because we can still do these same kinds of things today where we go, oh, well, I don't like the color of the carpet. I'm going to go somewhere else. Or I didn't like what Pastor Mel had to say last weekend, so I'm going to find a different church. And rather than engaging in these conversations and, and leaning into these tensions, we will tend to separate over these issues. And so it's important for us to see that throughout the history of the church, there have been questions to answer. There have been things that people didn't understand. There have been differences of opinion. And from day one, there has been a necessity for us to gather around the name of Jesus, to allow the truth of who Jesus is to be the thing that binds us together and then work out those differences within the context of community so the influence of Jesus might continue to spread and to grow and we might come together in the unity of the body of Christ and be made perfect and complete. And so in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter six, it begins to hint that Luke, the writer there, hints at some of the tension that's happening. And he writes that the Hellenist believers, so the more Greek um, Christians, were complaining that their widows were being overlooked in the church distribution. So the church had a, you know, like a, a food uh, distribution, a food pantry, and they were taking food to the widows and the orphans. And the Greek widows, the Hellenist widows, were being overlooked. And so the 12 apostles, who were all Hebrews, solved this problem by appointing seven deacons, who were all Hellenists, to oversee the distribution of the goods. Uh, Justo Gonzalez, who is a historian, also points out that the two groups were treated differently by the Jewish religious authorities during this time as well. In Acts chapter 5, for example, when Peter and John, who were among the Hebrew group, the more Jewish group, as it were, they were arrested for preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and they were beaten, but they were released the next day. And then in Acts chapter 7, however, when Stephen, who was among the Hellenists, who was one of the seven deacons that had been appointed, he began preaching the gospel. He was stoned to death and became the first martyr in Christian history. And so these two groups were even treated differently by the Jewish authorities at that time. So then after Stephen is executed, um, many of those Hellenists, those more Greek-leaning Christians, fanned out into the neighboring provinces. They remained in touch with the church in Jerusalem, however. Um, we can see that in Acts chapter 8. Um, so Philip, who's another of the deacons, another... <laughs> of these Hellenist believers, he begins to preach the gospel in Samaria. And then Peter and John travel down into Samaria to show their approval of his ministry. And they lay hands on the people in Samaria and they receive the Holy Spirit. And so what we see is that the gospel is beginning to spread. It's leaving Jerusalem, it's going out into Samaria, and then, like I said, into Judea, and it's beginning to have a greater influence. And so this geographical spread of the gospel eventually leads to people who are not Jews becoming Christians. So then Gentiles begin to join the church. In Acts chapter 10, uh, after receiving a divine vision, 
instructing him not to call unclean what the Lord had declared to be clean. Uh, The apostle Peter actually became the first person to preach Christ to the Gentiles. And he was, he was shocked. He was surprised because the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he had fallen upon the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so as more and more of these Greek-leaning Jews, these Hellenist Jews and Gentiles put their faith in Jesus, the Christian community became increasingly distinct from the Jewish community. It starts to have a much more separate identity. And so Jewish Christians, many of them at least, continued to attend the synagogue on Saturdays, and then all the Christians would meet on Sunday. By the way, Christians started meeting on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. If you ever wonder why we have church on Sunday instead of Saturday, that's why. Um, so they would still, many of them, go to the synagogue on Saturday, but then they would meet with the other Christians on Sunday because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that's how we started meeting on Sunday. Uh, but since Sunday was a work day in the ancient worlds, the early Christians would meet uh, at a house um, before and after work to sing psalms and hymns and listen to the apostles' teaching and read the prophecy. And new believers were initiated into this community of faith through the rite of baptism, which we still practice today. And at the evening meetings, Christians would share a communal meal they called the love feast, and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember Christ's death on the cross. And so the church is becoming increasingly ethnically diverse at this time. And because of that, the question of whether or not Christians had to obey the law of Moses becomes more and more pressing. The Jews had, a, had long had what they, they, Jews had a two-tiered system um, in which, so there were these uh, people that they would call God-fearers. These were the uncircumcised believers. And they were allowed to attend synagogue, but not to participate in communal meals. And for that, In order to participate in the communal meals, people had to become ritually pure by becoming circumcised. But those distinctions didn't work well in the church because eating together was a central part of Christian worship. Uh, And just as a side note, I think it's a practice that we should reinstitute. There's something really significant about eating a meal together with people. Uh, And I would even go so far as to say that it's, there's an even greater level of significance when we invite people into our homes to eat meals with us rather than meeting at a restaurant somewhere uh, because there's a sense of community and hospitality and acceptance and belonging that happens within that context that is powerful. And that was one of the practices of the early church. They would meet together and eat every week. And so since gathering around the table to eat was a really important part of Christian worship, uh, in Antioch, um, which was the first mixed race church, it became the first church to set aside that rule that you had to be circumcised in order to participate in the communal meal. Antioch also became the first church to send out missionaries to the Gentiles. Uh, They chose Barnabas and Paul, uh, and Paul, um, as we probably most of us know, had formerly been known as Saul. He was a Pharisee who had once persecuted the church. In fact, Stephen, who we talked about a minute ago, who was the first martyr, 
the Acts, uh, Acts says that Paul stood there and gave approval to Stephen's stoning. So he was present there, uh, and, and many people believe that he actually probably instigated the stoning, that, that, was, that he was responsible for Stephen's death. Um, but, you, we, you know, Paul had experienced a radical conversion after Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And so now Paul is a full proponent of Gentile inclusion into the church without circumcision. And so he begins preaching in Cyprus and in in Asia Minor. And this is really upsetting for the mainstream Jews, so much so that he was whipped in the synagogues. He barely survived a stoning. And he was followed for hundreds of miles by enemy preachers who contradicted his message in every town. Um, but the book of Acts records all of these events. But I don't know sometimes that a cursory reading helps us really, I mean, you know, that, that we really see that sometimes, that, that there was real opposition to what Paul was doing and to the fact that he was preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and that they weren't requiring Gentiles to become circumcised in order to be a part of the church. So much so, like I said, that he was followed for hundreds of miles by some of these people who disagreed with him so that they could contradict his message in every town where he went. So this issue of circumcision becomes a really big deal. It becomes a point of conflict between the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and the more heavily Gentile congregation in Antioch. And so then in AD 47, Jews from Jerusalem visited Antioch and demanded that the Christians there be circumcised. But Paul, uh, in his letter to the Galatians, writing about that event says, we did not submit to them for a moment. So instead of submitting to this request, Paul argues that those who submitted to the law of Moses as a requirement for salvation after coming to God through Christ and receiving the Spirit by faith. And so this was the major point that Paul was making, that these Gentile believers who were not circumcised, who were not keeping the law of Moses, as it were, had received the same Holy Spirit that the Jewish believers had that the Holy Spirit had fallen on them, that they had spoken with other tongues, that they had placed faith in Jesus and that their lives had been transformed as a result of that. And they proclaimed the message of the gospel boldly in their communities and in their cities. And, and so this is the argument that Paul makes. And so he says they've received Christ by the Spirit. And so if they then submit to the law of Moses, they are cutting themselves off from Christ and falling away from grace because they're then putting their trust and their faith in something other than the work that Jesus has already done in and for them. And so that issue was still divisive enough, however, that a council of church leaders met in Jerusalem the following year. And this is the first what we might call council of the church. And there'll be more of these throughout history, but this is the precedent that is set. And this is happening in in the book of Acts. And so after discussion and prayer, and so the leaders from the Jerusalem church are there, Paul and some of the leaders from the Gentile church were there. And so after discussion and prayer, the council decided in Antioch's favor. And this was largely on the basis of Peter's testimony that the Gentiles had received the spirit without being circumcised. And if the spirit that once inhabited the most holy place in the temple had been poured out on the Jew, on the Gentiles, then the issue of circumcision and ritual purity was a moot point. All right, so in spite of that though, 
In spite of the fact that the Jerusalem council had decided against circumcision, old beliefs die hard. And so even some of the apostles wavered on the question of whether Gentiles could be full-fledged members of the people of God. And we see this again. So James, who led this church in Jerusalem, he's a half-brother of Jesus, by the way, um, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was one of the most conservative first century leaders. And so he asked Paul, asked Peter and Barnabas to stop eating with the Gentiles. And Peter and Barnabas complied. Paul is really upset by this. Um, of course, you know, he's been dealing with the Judaizers. That was what this group who was proponents of the law were called. Paul's been dealing with them for a long time. They've been following him around. And everywhere he preaches the gospel, they come in and say, no, that's not really how this works. You guys got to all be circumcised and you got to, you know, you got to abide by the Jewish uh, kosher laws and you got to go to all these festivals and you got to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And if you don't do that, then you're not a Christian. Paul's been dealing with this for a long time. And so he's pretty upset, especially after this council has declared that this is not a requirement that must be placed on the Gentiles. And so then... Peter kind of waffles on it because of the influence of James. And Paul says this in his letter to Galatians. He says that he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. And so the very person who had had this vision about not calling unclean what God had purified had gone back on his word. All of this sets this groundwork to say that from that point forward in church history, the Hellenists or the more uh, Greek-leaning Jews grew. That group began to grow through missionary expansion. Uh, While the Hebrew Jews, uh, the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians suffered a series of setbacks that culminated with the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. Man, that's a lot, right? So now we're beginning to get into this, the, the, when the so a lot of this tension at this point has been internal within the church. There's, there's been, you know, this, this tension about whether Gentiles can be a part of the church. The more Greek, Christian, or Greek of the Jewish Christians and the more Hebrew of the Jewish Christians are having some issues with one another. And so there's tension within the church that threatens the church. But there's also this... Um, this pressure from outside the church that begins to come to bear. And so with some of these internal tensions, they begin to to work on some of this stuff. In AD 57, Paul patched up his relationship with James uh, and the Hebrew church by taking up a collection for them from among his Gentile churches because the church in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times and they were, there, were pers- there was persecution that was happening in Jerusalem. Uh, and so Paul makes a collection and takes it to them and helps them and blesses the church in Jerusalem. And after Paul arrived, he visited the temple at James' request uh, with a few Jewish believers who were under a Nazarite vow, and he paid for their offering to show that they did not oppose Jewish believers following Jewish customs as long as they didn't require Gentiles to do the same. And so uh, then after this happens, after Paul goes to Jerusalem and blesses the Jerusalem church, the, the book of Acts doesn't ever mention the church in Jerusalem again after that. 
It focuses on Paul and his various trials in Jerusalem and his eventual appeal to Caesar. Um, and then, of course, um, there are some other things that begin to happen. So the last apostolic leader in Jerusalem in A.D. 62, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death at the command of the high priest. And it looks, at least church history would tell us, that Jesus' cousin Simeon became the new leader of the church in A.D. 66. There was a Roman-Jewish war that broke out after the emperor Nero ordered the Jews who were already um, reeling from years of oppression to perform a daily sacrifice to him as a god, and the Jewish people rebelled against this. Uh, and Jew Jerusalem managed to hold out against that siege. Uh, so Nero um, took laid siege on Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem held out for four years, but the Romans finally broke through the walls of Jerusalem in AD 70, and they completely destroyed the city. They burned every synagogue in the entire province to the ground. Um, and most significantly for the Jewish religion, they destroyed the temple, which fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that not one of its stones would be left upon another. So it was this event, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, that really deepened the division between Jews and Christians. Jerusalem Christians heeding Jesus' prophecy that Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed, they fled the city before the siege began. So the Jewish Christians had already left Jerusalem and been scattered. And so the destruction of Jerusalem happened exactly 40 years, Passover to Passover, 40 years exactly after Jesus' crucifixion. And so Christians saw that as God's judgment on the Jewish people for rejecting the Messiah and for killing God's son. And then for their part, <clears throat> Jews tended to see Jewish Christians' refusal to stand and fight the Romans because they had left the city um, before the siege took place. And so the Jews saw that as an act of treason. And so across the empire then, synagogue rules were changed. So Jewish Christians had been going to the synagogue on Saturday. We mentioned this before. Had been going to the synagogue on Saturday and then meeting together in homes on Sunday. But after the destruction of Jerusalem because of the rift between the traditional Jewish religion and these new Je Jesus followers, uh, synagogue rules were rewritten and excluded Christians from membership, right? So at this point then in history, Christianity becomes not just a sect or a segment of the Jewish religion, it becomes a completely separate entity. And so... Um, Jewish or Jerusalem Christians had been forced to resettle in other places. So the Hebrew church in Jerusalem more or less disappeared after the war. And from that point forward, Christianity becomes a predominantly Gentile movement. All right. Um, real quickly, I want to cover just a couple more things. And then if you have questions or whatever, um, we can, we can try to tackle some of those as best we can. And so the Jewish church in Jerusalem disappears at this point. The church in history becomes predominantly a Gentile movement at this point in history. So the Gentile church, because they were far from Jerusalem, didn't have those same issues with Roman occupation and things like that, but they had their own fair share of problems um, 
and there was persecution from Rome, but it was for completely different reasons. Um, Suetonius, who was a Roman historian, says that the emperor Claudius expelled Christians from Rome as early as AD 51. Uh, this was most probably because of the conflict between Christians and Jews in the city of Rome. And then the first major, major persecution of Christians outside of Judea, so outside of the region around Jerusalem. So the first major uh, persecution of Christians broke out in AD 64, in, to be precise, in June of AD 64, when a large portion of the city of Rome was burned down under uh, the emperor Nero. Now, Historically, we understand that probably Nero was responsible for the fires, but uh, he needed, so, and, and that was the, the rumor that began to spread throughout Rome, right? People began to hear that it's Nero. Nero was, if you know much about Roman history or the, the Caesars, Nero was, uh, well, he was crazy, just to put it bluntly, and he was uh, cruel, and he, yeah, so we'll, we'll talk more about Nero in just a second. But because the, the rumor began to spread around Rome that Nero was responsible for the fires, so he had a kind of a, uh, a PR problem on his hand, uh, and so he needed a scapegoat. So conveniently for Nero, all of the neighborhoods that had burned down were heavily populated by Christians. Now, we don't know if this was a calculated move on Nero's part, if he was trying to squash uh, the Christian movement in Rome, or if it just happened to be the case. But for whatever reason, uh, all of the neighborhoods that burned down were heavily populated by Christians. Christians were already unpopular due to their proclamation that Jesus and not Caesar was the true Lord. And this is going to be one of the things that causes tensions between the Roman state and Christians because Jesus is Lord. That proclamation was seen as treason against the Roman Empire. And so that's one of the reasons that Christians are persecuted. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, he described Nero's persecution of Christians um, he also described Christians, however, as haters of the human race. <laughs> so this was the, the, the view that people had of Christians, that Roman citizens had of Christians at this point. And so there was a wave of intense persecution that followed uh, because people blamed Christians for the burning of Rome. And a wave of intense persecution followed. It was during this time under Nero that both Peter and Paul were put to death Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down after he judged himself unworthy of dying in the same way that Jesus had. Uh, Paul, since he was a Roman citizen, uh, he got, I suppose you could say, a more humane execution. Uh, he was beheaded. So, uh, Tacitus, this historian that I mentioned a second ago, also wrote that Nero refined cruelty to the uttermost. So here are some of the things that Nero did during this time of persecution against Christians. He would dress them up in animal skins and then let dogs tear them apart. He crucified thousands. Uh, and then he would take some and he would burn them at the stake and use them as like human tiki torches to make light for his garden parties. 
So Nero's tactics were so extreme that even Romans who believed that Christians deserved to die began to pity them since it was obvious that they were being destroyed not for the public good, but to gratify, gratify the cruelty of the emperor. So that was the first major persecution in AD 64. And that, that persecution ended in AD 68 when Nero committed suicide. So then there's a, a period of relative peace, I suppose you could say, but a generation later, a new wave of persecution begins under the emperor Domitian. Uh, unlike Domitian, though, or unlike Nero, though, Domitian wasn't looking for a scapegoat. His issue was that he wanted to force Christians to participate in the emperor cult, uh, which involved offering sacrifices to the emperor as a god. So Christians refused to do that, because they considered it to be idolatry. Uh, the Apostle John, in, in the book of Revelation, he wrote the book of Revelation in exile on the island of Patmos. This was actually during the persecution of Domitian. Uh, he's most likely referring to participation in the emperor cult when he speaks of the mark of the beast. I know that, you know, we like to look at the future implications of what that means, but uh, Revelation, this is a little bit of a, a sidetrack uh, from, from church history? Maybe not. Maybe it's... But unlike other pieces of apocalyptic literature from that time, or even in the Bible, like in Daniel, for example, which is another example of apocalyptic literature in Scripture, in, in the book of Daniel, uh, God instructs Daniel to bind up the book and that it will be for a later time that the people now will not understand what's going on, but the people in the future will, right? So he says to bind up the book and to put it away and that those in the future would read it. Those who would come later would read it. That's not the case for the book of Revelation. It's got all of this apocalyptic verbiage, but God tells John in the beginning to send this letter, send this book to the seven churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. Right, And so what that indicates to us is that there would have been a contemporary meaning for all of these things, that the people who first read this book would have had an understanding of what John was talking about, not only in terms of what's going to happen in the future, but the persecution that they were facing contemporarily. And so when... When John refers to taking the mark of the beast, it's most likely that he's referring to participation in this emperor cult this refusal by Christians to, to worship the emperor as a god or to make sacrifices to him. And so John's revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament, depicts the horror of Domitian's persecution in symbolic form. It depicts the Roman Empire as a great whore, drunk with the blood of the saints, but it also promises a new heaven and a new earth to those who remain faithful unto death. And, and can I just say this to try and be helpful to you if you're studying Revelation? The overarching message of the book of Revelation is that God takes care of his people. And so uh, while it is helpful and beneficial for us to study it and to try to understand the symbols that are there, uh, there, there is not a need to understand all of that to understand what it is that John 
through the Holy Spirit is telling to the church of his day and to us. And that is that God takes care of his people and that there is no need for us to be afraid. There is no need for us to cower in fear. There is no need for us to hide away. There is no need for us to be to sink into despair when things are going haywire around us because God always takes care of his people. All right, so I hope that's helpful to you. Uh, Domitian's persecution continued intermittently, like there were kind of waves of it, uh, and it continued under subsequent empire em, emperors. Um, and so then now that we're at AD 112, and this gives us, there was a letter that was written, and this gives us a window into what Christians faced during this time. So Pliny, who was a provincial governor, he writes uh, a letter to the emperor Trajan because he's got a lot of Christians in his province that he's having to deal with, and he's not sure exactly how he should deal with him. So he asks the emperor, he said, hey man, should special consideration be shown to people who are old or who are sick? Should those who renounce their faith be pardoned? Is, a, is being a Christian in and of itself reason enough for punishment or must they also have committed some other offense? Christians were often accused of atheism uh, because they didn't worship idols. <laughs> uh, they were accused of cannibalism because uh, they claimed to you know, eat, the, eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood, right? Which we know is symbolic and not literal, but because of that, language. They were accused of being cannibals. They were accused of incest because they had these love feasts, right? And they called each other brother and sister. And so they were accused of incest because of that. And those charges were, um, evidence of those charges were, were never found, but those were the charges that were being levied against Christians anyway. So Pliny writes this letter and he also tells the emperor uh, how he's dealt with this issue up until now. So he's like, here's how I've been dealing with this. Is, is this the right way to handle it? He said, I've been asking them three times whether they are Christians. And then if they refuse to renounce their faith, I'll execute them. On the other hand, uh, he dismisses the charges. If anyone's willing to give an offering to the gods and to the emperor's image and curse Christ. And he seems a little bit conflicted about putting Christians to death because he says his investigations into their practices have turned up no evidence of wrongdoing. He's like, they don't do anything wrong. They just got some weird beliefs. So, I mean, does it, should we be killing them because of that? He even went so far as to torture two deaconesses from the church, uh, but says he found no fault in them other than what he called superstition. And so since he'd been condemning Christians, uh, he writes that there had been a flood of new accusations. So he's like, I've been condemning these Christians to death. And so now all everybody's accusing people of being Christians. And so now he's like, I got all these court cases on my hand. I've got more junk to deal with than I want to because anybody who's got beef with their neighbor just accuses him of being a Christian. And then I got to deal with it. And so he's like, and so there had actually been a pamphlet that had been uh, circulating around town uh, with the names of people who were accused of being Christians on it. And so he's like, man, this is a mess. I got a problem on my hands. And so because of the number of Christians in his courtroom, 
he becomes aware of the deep inroads that they had made into every sector of society. So in spite of this persecution, the church continues to grow and to thrive. And this has been the case throughout history. And this is one of the things that should give us hope, that should be an encouragement to us, is that whenever there has been persecution, whenever there has been resistance, the gospel has not retreated, it has thrived. And so in spite of this persecution, Christians had made inroads into every sector of society. And in his letter, Pliny wrote that the Roman temples had nearly been deserted and that buyers could scarcely be found for sacrificial animals. But he says, as a result of my policies, because I've been executing Christians or uh, pardoning those who uh, will renounce their faith, the temples are beginning to be busy again. So he's like, hey, good news, business is booming because I've been killing these folks. And uh, so, but is this how I should be handling it? And so the emperor Trajan writes a letter back and he says, yeah, man, you're on the right track. Uh, but you don't need to hunt these people down. There's no need to seek out Christians and he should pay no mind to the anonymous accusations. But if somebody is credibly accused of being a Christian and the charge is proven, he is authorized to offer them a pardon if they are willing to worship the Roman gods. But if they refuse, they are to be punished. But he said, hey, that, you know, there's no hard and fast rule that can be laid down. So what he's saying is like, if... If you want to execute them, that's fine. If you just want to beat them and let them go, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll give you discretion on that. But you're on the right track. Keep up your, what you're doing. Way to go. Um, and so what this letter shows us is that Christians were facing a, like a hundred years, right? A hundred years into the history of the church at this point, and we see the the kind of opposition that the gospel is still facing, and there are there's this resistance and opposition to the spread of Jesus' influence. But by the early second century, so this would be you know the early one hundreds, the Roman state saw Christianity as a separate religion from Judaism, and that was important because. Judaism, because it was old, Romans respected things that were old, uh, they had an exemption from the emperor cult. So Jewish people did not have to sacrifice to the emperor or, or worship the emperor because the Romans respected things that were old. But Christianity, by contrast, was uh, seen as an upstart religion. It was a new thing. And they worshiped a man that the Roman government had put to death for sedition. Not only did they worship this man who had been killed for sedition, uh, but they gave him titles like king and savior and lord. And those were all titles that Caesar claimed for himself. And so Christianity, because of that, was seen as a threat to public order and stability. And so since Christians refused to compromise, the persecution of Christians would continue for the next 200 years. But in spite of that, the church would continue to survive against overwhelming odds, and Jesus' influence would continue to spread. And so uh, I want to wrap up our time. Yeah, kind of actually a little longer than I intended to, but there's a lot to get to. But I want to close our time together uh, by reading a prayer uh, from this period in history. 
so that we can see the way in which Christians during this time were calling on God and believing God, believing Jesus uh, to take care of them. And so this prayer comes from um, what a book known as the Didache, which was a handbook on Christian morals and church order that was written in the early second century. It includes several prayers for different occasions in the life of the church. Um, and it gives us a few glimpses outside of the New Testament into what early church worship looked like. And so this prayer that we're going to read together, or I'm going to read, I guess you don't have it in front of you, so you can't read it with me. But this, was, this prayer was meant to be prayed after the Lord's Supper had been celebrated. Um, and it's really poignant when we think about the fact that the folks who were praying this prayer were facing persecution that the fact that they were even meeting together was, would mean that there was threat on their life, that at any moment, right, the Roman authorities could burst in and break up this meeting and that they could be taken before the courts and accused of being a Christian. And if they did not renounce their faith, it was very likely that they would die. So in the midst of these circumstances, this is what they would pray after they'd received the Lord's Supper together. Remember, Lord, thy church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love and to gather it together in its holiness from the four winds to your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If any man be holy, let him come. If any man be not, let him repent. Maranatha, which means Lord come. Amen. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.